just a content warning that on this episode we talk about alcohol misuse and suicidal thoughts. So please consider if this is the right episode or the right time for you to listen. Thank you. Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, I'm talking to Harrison Ward, perhaps better known as Fell Foodie. Harrison is an outdoor cook who loves to recreate restaurant-style meals on minimal equipment, that's usually a camp stove, on the top of a hill, or in his native Cumbrian, a fell. He has a huge following across various social media platforms and has featured regularly in the media, including Country Farm magazine, Men's Fitness, and recently on the BBC in Dame Mary Berry's latest series, Love to Cook. His life was very different just some short years ago. Struggling with a clinical depression, first appearing in his adolescence, Harrison's life spiralled out of control. At its worst, he was consuming in excess of 20 pints daily, was a full-time smoker and had ballooned in weight to over 22 stone. The end of a relationship and a personal breakdown led to a major life change. Harrison is now over seven years sober, has thrown himself into fitness and hiking and merged his passion for food into his new routine. He regularly delivers talks at festivals, on podcasts, workplaces, and as a keynote speaker about his personal battle with depression, suicidal thoughts, and a journey from an overweight alcoholic smoker to the fit, fell-loving foodie he is today. Harrison, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) You're very welcome. Um, Yes, I've been trying to get you, or trying to get the courage to ask you for a while. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, behave. There's often to sort of get the courage for. It was nice to get that email in the inbox, really. But, uh, I know we met a while ago now. Didn't meet one of the... Uh, we the did. Where our friend live. But it's yes. Nice for the outdoor fix, which you feature in. There's too much that you do that I couldn't fit into the um, intro. But yes, that was one of the books. And I guess it was originally from her podcast. And seen you before then. And I'm always inspired by your story it seems such a transformation how does it feel looking back because I guess particularly from my experience of when I try and explain to people what's happened to me over the last few years when you're living in it you're just surviving and then when you suddenly look back you're like oh yeah that is quite remarkable I think it's bizarre for sure I think it's certainly like looking back on a stranger at times and although as you say it's something you lived through sometimes it can be be quite alien almost I've often said sort of recently I think for those that maybe knew me before that change as well i mean it must be even more dramatic sort of seeing that full cycle i mean there's a lot of friends and peers that i've met since in sort of this industry and various bits who know me now and how i am and i think largely personality wise is the same but of course i was just afflicted and almost possessed by this substance and my mental afflictions but seeing that change full circle from one minute perhaps you know just being asleep on the side of a bar to all of a sudden run up these mountainsides almost overnight. It must have been so bonkers to <laughs> to have witnessed, really. But, yeah, sometimes it can feel like yesterday. Sometimes it can feel like a decade ago. It is a, a bizarre circle. But I think it's also important sometimes to, to look back on where you've maybe come from. And then, again, it maybe pushes you on further from the point where you are now, I think, rather than getting complacent, perhaps. Yes. And definitely one thing that I want to talk to you, because it seems such a neat package from going from this alcoholic and these destructive lifestyles to then who you are now. But I'm guessing, well, we'll unpick, but there's there's resilience needed. There's battles needed constantly to keep that transformation rather than it being a finished article. But maybe if I could take you back to just giving us a brief outline of what your life looked like when we were talking about those dark periods yeah so it couldn't really be further away from what it is now really I mean I I began sort of suffering um with my own head sort of through puberty through my early years through teenage years adolescence in school again almost an overnight sensation perhaps going through that hormonal hormonal change period all of a sudden being hit by this sort of sense of self-loathing this demotivation insecurity you know sort of you know didn't like how I looked didn't like maybe how I was acting overthinking everything I maybe said not knowing my purpose in life or where I was going. And it was something that really 
had come from this quite extroverted, outgoing child to now experiencing these very dark emotions and not really knowing how to deal with those and not really be able to compare that to anyone in public space or anyone close to me. And I just sort of really became quite reclusive with it. I wasn't a reclusive person, but in some of my emotions, I didn't speak out about them at all. So I didn't reach out to family or friends. I didn't speak to any sort of medicinal help. Just sort of saw this as something that, an odd thing to wake up with the next morning, not knowing what it was, but now this was the new reality and having just to live with this, really. So I kind of wore a bit of a mask in a way. I'd put on that brave face. I didn't want to be a burden to other people. So I just sort of grinned and bared it, I guess, and kind of, you know, that that keep calm, carry on, I guess, different generational mantras that sort of got spilled in maybe into that ethics. But sort of looking now, I think back and being sort of self-aware of that time, I think, of course, now there's a lot more people speaking out about this sort of thing, maybe more high-profile sort of celebrities or social media accounts. There's a lot more spoke about in the news about this now that perhaps there wasn't really anything for me to relate to at the time. So I felt as if I was completely alone and that no one could relate to what I was going through. Now, this sort of, I guess, developed over time. It's something I suffered through from 13. Um, again, battling with suicidal ideations as well, not wanting to be here at all, not knowing what my purpose in life was, not knowing where I was going to get to. And I suppose at 18, I was working in hospitality all during this time, alongside my studies. So starting off in the kitchens, just pot washing, moving on to waiting on, to behind the bar at 18. And really, again, coming across that world of alcohol at that point. So what is quite a rite of passage, I guess, in this country, sort of ingrained in the culture, certainly in British culture anyway. And that, you know, 18, off you're going out of your mates. And again, maybe a male sort of bravado thing too. How much can you sink? How many pints can you put away? And I quite enjoyed the social aspect of that at first. I enjoyed going out there, meeting different people from different spaces, but also enjoyed the sensation that maybe alcohol was giving me, that sort of Dutch courage, if you will, that that social lubricant and really allowing those dark thoughts internally to be to be appeased and dissipated. So it was something that quite quickly um, I enjoyed the sensation of, something that I sought more often. And I guess, you know, listening initially tolerance was horrendous, I guess. I'd only have a few pints and I'd be going home uh, Pissed, you know, as as we would at those age when you first sort of stumble upon that sort of substance. But as time built up and more tolerance built up, I was drinking more and more and more. And again, always reaching further to get to that point of perhaps euphoria, that euphoric state that I, that I liked, almost that, that floaty state that you got with with being drunk and until to the point that it went too far, of course, and it would be into sort of blackout oblivion. And it was something that, again, I didn't really see it. As anything other than medicinal at the time, it was, it was it was just quite a normal practice to go through. But then something that was also helping me on the side and moving away to York for university, um, this really began to sort of sort of spiral downwards. Um, found myself back in that trade once again, and really alcohol became sort of the sole focus. My studies fell by the wayside. I was highly functioning at this time. I was keeping a job going, working my way up the pub trade actually, but again, very much a kid in a sweet shop and just sort of enjoying what was on offer at the time, being able to turn up, I guess, half drunk from the previous day or stinking of booze and, again, meeting people in that circle as well and perhaps touring around. I mean, I think I dubbed it market research at one point where I'd go pub to pub after work, just sort of, you know, checking out the competition or meeting other people in the space that could relate to maybe a bad day you've had or who you've dealt with or the fantastic customers you've had sometimes. And it just became really something I did from the minute I got up at one point brushing my teeth with the stuff to coffee cup behind the bar full of booze to then out on the town after my shift. And it was really just every waking hour of the day, me going about getting this fixed, this quota, just to really get to a point of, of alleviation, just to just shut off to escape each day um, in complete inebriation. And I didn't see it as a problem at the time, didn't see it as anything other than what it was. I was a heavy drinker. I was good at drinking, put a lot of practice in. And it was my job as well. So it was kind of just all my, my personality. It was just my, my, my being. But that medicinal tool really at this point had had become quite a poison and um yeah it was was taking me on some dark dark turns really and what was the turning point when it shifted or when you got to that rock bottom maybe so there was two sort of i guess monumental moments that perhaps um one should have been maybe the change initially and the second was that change the first one being around my sort of 21st birthday as you mentioned in the introduction there in terms of this this point i was drinking to those excessive levels sort of 20 pints daily Again, health-wise, I, w- I was looking sort – of, it was very noticeable. It wasn't just something that perhaps, you know, was just going on mentally now. It was very physically noticeable as well from the outside, perhaps. But again, I think because I wasn't speaking out about my issues, it was just maybe the fact that, you know, he's drinking a bit much, he's eating a bit much, nothing else. And around my 21st birthday, I had a lot of friends come to visit me in York. And again, heading around the town, celebrating this milestone birthday. 
And one by one, they started to head home. And it really sort of dawned on me, I guess, how, how alone I was in the city. The fact that although I was working in quite a social space, I had friends in the area. I was I was a, sort of a known character and was was a friendly chap as well. But in reality, I was just sort of quite a solitary drinker, touring round, opening conversations with people that I came across, but not really having any close relationships other than this relationship with alcohol. And there was a moment that really just dawned on me that I felt as if this was no longer providing that escape that initially it was. I'd reached a point that my tolerance was so high, I guess, that I wasn't getting that euphoric state that I actually wanted. Sometimes I was chasing that and not getting to it. And now, of course, the depressant aspect of perhaps alcohol as well was providing much further darkness, almost like it was a, introduced by this sort of depression as you know, as a friend at first, but the two sort of conspired against me and would drag me further down. And I made a call home at one point in the early hours of the morning to my mum, and I just had one intention, really, and it was just to say goodbye. I didn't feel like I could go on any further. I felt like it wasn't providing an escape anymore, and that really I didn't see any any existence for me in this life, and I planned to end it all, really. I suppose that should have been the moment of change then, and that should have been maybe the wake-up call, but in honesty, I was quite annoyed at myself. The fact I'd let someone in, I'd almost revealed this secret, this secret I'd be bearing. You know, I'd allowed a little gap, um, a gap in the arm, if you will. And I did come home briefly to Cumbria, sought a bit of medical help, but wasn't willing to make that change. So I quickly took myself back to York on the train, took myself back there and carried on this exact same lifestyle for another five years. And it was only that point really finding myself in a relationship, again, that you touched on at the start, that was something that I really, I guess, always wanted in life. Again, sharing that with somebody else, sharing that sort of partnership and, you know, and memories and experiences. And really, it was something that, although I'd always longed for that, I was kind of already in a compromised state in a relationship with something else, that being alcohol at the time. The two didn't go hand in hand. We'd quite often bounce off each other. And um, I'd always head out on the drink, I suppose, as my means of dealing with that problem, if you will. It was always just like... Let's walk away from this. Let's go back to the pub. Always leaving at that situation and not facing it head on. And on one particular occasion on this evening, I went out and acted unfaithfully to this partner. Something that, although I was completely inebriated, you know, I can't blame the alcohol for this. It was my actions at the end of the day. But certainly something that felt like I was almost possessed in my actions. And it was really a moment that woke me up from this, from this darkness that I never wanted to be that burden. And now I was hurting those around me. I was hurting those closest to me. And I was really dissolving the things I wanted most through my own actions. So the, the fact that I acted dishonestly, the fact you know, I was lying a lot of the time now, the fact I was unfaithful to this partner, completely crumbled my foundations. And it was rightly so the end of the relationship, but it was also the end of the relationship in another way for me. It was the, the moment that I tried to leave alcohol behind and, and come out of that cycle. So it was the 6th of June, 2016, and that was really the steps into this next life that I'm living now. Wow. And it, it really was on that one night or day that you managed to make that decision like thank you so much for sharing how how that life looked back then and then what happened after that like it just sounds like even when you've got that decision it's so hard to put that into action day after day after day and how how did that go well as you say it was a completely almost light switch moment a complete moment of change of direction. I mean, one minute you sort of live in this life, and although now looking back, it was a very destructive life, very sort of, you know, um, lethargic living, but that wasn't really my awareness at the time. And literally overnight, it became a, di a different sort of circle. So I suppose to try and win that partner back, I vowed to change that old sort of statement, you know, I'll change, I can change, I can make a difference. And I went back into work the next day. And already at this point, I hadn't been out on the drink like I usually did. I'd throw my lack of plastic cigarettes in the bin. I went back into work and did my shift and was quite subdued to cooking the breakfast for the punters in the hotel that morning. And the boss came in and said, you know, you don't seem quite right today. What, what's up with you? And I just completely broke down in front of him. I just, in tears, just my whole sort of foundations I'd built were just disappearing. And he said, go take a minute outside for yourself. And that minute ended up being sort of about seven hours. I think just sat there staring at the wall, just... Not no communication, just completely in my own head. I guess just maybe coming to terms with this monumental destruction that just occurred literally the night previous. And my colleague came out to me with a pint glass and said, here, get this down. Yeah, this will sort you out. And I said, I don't drink anymore, John. He said, you what? 
So I don't drink anymore. And he was just looking at me, they're confused with this. Going, what, what's going on here? Is this a brief fad? What's this? You know, he's always, he's on the end of the bar every night. He'll just drink anything he's given. He's constantly just human drip tray almost just. And it was really that particular moment that I felt as if I had to leave that behind, try and get sober. Again, this is trying to win this partner back. But I felt to do that, I couldn't stay in this city any longer either. But this city had become so ingrained in my routine. I've been there seven years at this point now. I was known in that sort of statement. I was known in the bars at town. I had my routine. And I felt to get out of this cycle, I had to remove myself from that. So literally overnight, I left that city. Um, I returned to Cumbria. Didn't say goodbye to anyone. I'd lost my girlfriend. I'd quit my job, leaving that city behind and trying to really throw myself into fitness as a means of of recovery. And at the same time, I came completely clean to friends and family for the first time in my life. Again, this this secret I'd been sort of holding now for, for 12 years, apart from that blip at sort of 21, that blip as I saw it, letting a few people in, it was still very much a secret life I was living. And the extent of perhaps what I was drinking wasn't really known, even to those who saw me day in in that city. And the support I received back at that moment was just integral to these next steps. You know, again, something I'd always worried about judgment or worried about what was going to go on, but finally reaching out there and saying, look, I've got a problem. This has happened. I'm being accountable to this. I'm trying to make a change. And it was just so, so humbling and so empowering. Unbelievable, really. But literally, this was the next next door of a night. And I threw myself into fitness. So at first, it was getting my old bike out the shed and going for the old loops I used to do. Back home in Cumbria, I was heading for a few walks down to the coffee shops and various bits, joined a gym again, and again became sort of cooking fresh again from home, something I'd always had a passion for in my young age, cooking fresh produce, healthy where I could. Again, trying to think about how I was fueling myself to try and make things better. Again, putting that bad fuel into a car and expecting it to go 100 miles wasn't going to happen. So for these years of literally almost a liquid diet or picking up what I had to hand from the scraps in the kitchen or sort of the pub kitchen or bag of nuts from behind the bar which is kind of now dissipating into this this sort of fresh cuisine this mindful practice that i enjoyed of cooking as well and this really led on to one particular friend who turned it on the doorstep and uh said we're going to go for a hike that day and um this was the start of something else altogether <laughs> how long after you had that point where you became sober was this going for a hike so this is in the first two weeks. Oh, wow. Okay, I thought we were like months yeah. down the line. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was absolutely just a, a, a light switch moment. I mean, again, sort of medically, for those that maybe know in this sort of stem with the alcohol side, I mean, it's not advisable to go from that level of consumption to go sort of, you know, cold turkey, as I did, really. I mean, it can be quite quite life-threatening, mm. really. But it's, um, for me at the time, I felt I just I was just completely shattered. I just, just my whole being, my whole person I'd built, was just almost collapsing overnight and it just it really felt like a not at the time then but later de- definitely sort of like an epiphany sort of moment really of how far i'd fallen how far this had become and really the fact that i wasn't winning this war with myself with my own thoughts and really again i suppose now this this became a point that i've spoken about many times i guess this sort of next sort of turnaround but it, sometimes it perhaps comes across as if it was quite easy but it certainly I mean, it certainly wasn't I mean, this was the hardest period i've ever been through certainly the like first three months that led on of just constantly every day, my head absolutely booming from withdrawals, hallucinations, cold sweats, piling for my ex, overweight, unfit, everything coming off the smoking at the same time, just jagging for that nicotine. It was just everything at once, but just trying to push forward to make this change, really. And this one particular friend had turned up on the doorstep to go for a hike. And although I was brought up quite near the Lake District, I really didn't embrace what I had on my doorstep. I just thought it was just hills, really. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't my cup of tea. I'm more likely to be found in some of the uh, country pubs, really. <laughs> and um, he took me in again. I just put on what I had to hand at the time, which was a, you know, an old pair of scabby trainers and some some swimming shorts. I think I had and a, <laughs> and a jump, jump I'd wear down the pub. And he just looked at me and said, you, know, "You can't go like that. I mean, look, you can't go hiking like that. Stay here." But again, I had no money at this time either. Literally, I mean, all my money had gone on the lifestyle before, maxing out credit cards, paying the last of my rents. The bar tab's probably still. Still open now in York. I mean, hopefully no landlords listening to this podcast. But, <laughs> but, um, it's all right. We'll crowdfund. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's all good. It's all good, I'm sure. But um, And then, literally, I had nothing to my name at this point, and he, he pulled off at this outdoor store on the way, grabbed this pair of boots off the shelf, and, and bought me these boots. And it was just, a again, another huge show of faith and really lifting up those around you. That, um, yeah, I suppose when your friends are like that, when you are down and 
down and out, you know, the ones that come rally around to pick you up, you know, you really know who your friends are in that case. And something I feel extremely lucky to have had because I, I know that's very much a privilege having that support network I had at that time. I've speak about it quite often, but it's a very lucky position to be in, especially in that sort of substance abuse angle as well and addictions where some people get past the point of these people being in their life where they, they run out of that unconditional love or, or friendship and it will eventually run out. But for me, lucky, I was lucky to still be at that moment of intervention, I guess, when this sort of change came. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I was going to say that I've been there as the friend with somebody who has been at that level of addiction. And it's a real, I just felt powerless and helpless. And the one thing that you want them to do and stop drinking, you just, there's nothing that I felt like I could do other than just be there uh, for when that moment came. And it did come for him, but it wasn't in our control. And I just wondered, like when you'd spoken to your mum, which was still years before you became sober, like were there interventions that family and friends had tried? Were they there? Is there any advice that you can give for those people that are the friends and family? I think it's as you say, I mean, I have had people reach out to me in the, in the past about this sort of question. And it's one that I'm, I'm often quite brutally honest about, really, that I think it has to become that point of the individual wanting for that change. And I, I don't often think that intervention always works. There'll be some people in the early stages, perhaps, that might be. But when you're really deep in that cycle, it almost breeds that sort of resentment that no matter who that person is individually and how much they they do love sort of you know their friends and family, the substance wins. It just, it just, it's almost like it possesses your mind in a sort of way, and it, it, it's telling you a different way. And it's a really bizarre place to be in. But looking back for me, um, there wasn't particular moments of intervention in terms of you know that sort of setup, that that side you think of everyone gathering in a room and walking in, and all of a sudden, right, sit down, we're going to talk about this. There was never that sort of particular moment, but there's definitely some moments I think of you know calling out perhaps my actions, or you know you've over, you've you made a bit of a show of yourself that night, or drunk too much, or there's definitely those moments looking back. But again, I think I was in those early stages, perhaps of, you know, I was given a few ultimatums by some friends sometimes of, you know, the fact I'd maybe acted out of character and, you know, they didn't really enjoy that. And the fact that they wouldn't really want to introduce me to friends and stuff in the future or spend time with me if I was going to act that way. But again, this didn't really hit home at the time. This didn't really um, become apparent until later on. So, a difficult one, but advice for that, as I say, it's such a hard one to say because often it's not what people want to hear, especially for loved ones and um, family members. And I've just almost been there. I mean, mm. you're waiting for that moment in a way, just providing as much support as you can, That always providing that love where you can do. But it's a very, very hurtful point. And there's a quote that says about alcohol being a great dissolvent, a dissolvent of relationships, finances, things around you, but but never problems. And it's... It's one of those really, really tough moments that can be really difficult seeing someone you love taken away in that sort of way. But there's not always people getting out the other side either. But mm -hmm. I do firmly believe I think it is often a place of individualism. It is a rock bottom sort of aspect sometimes. And sometimes takes something like a partner or a friendship actually walking out to maybe get to that point, which is a point you never want to really comprehend. But Yes, and in my previous oh, job, working, doing parole board hearings for prisoners, I mean, sometimes that that turning point came years into a prison sentence. Like it can, it, it really can be such a long, a long way down, can't it, for some people where that point comes. And I was just wondering, like it sounded really positive that there were still friends there. But I also wondered about what you had to leave behind to have that new lifestyle. Like, for example, on this podcast, we've talked about losing identity when, for example, being injured and you can't do the sport you love or something. And I was just wondering, like, it sounded like that alcohol had become such a part of your identity as maybe this outgoing, up for a laugh, up for going out guy. And that's such a huge part of who you were or who you thought you were. And to suddenly step away from that must be, I mean, you mentioned that you, you use the word epiphany, but I could imagine it also a bit like, who am I? An existentialist crisis. Who am I without the alcohol? And so, yeah, did you see it as part of your identity? And was that hard to find out who you were without it? Aspects, I think, for sure. I think um, I can never imagine myself without a drink. I was very much one of those people that would push a drink on people. Um yeah, you know, I didn't really, almost didn't trust people who didn't drink. It was kind of a really, really restrained cycle. 
And becoming that person, I guess, I, I, I firmly didn't want to be someone that was going to be left out because this was no longer a part of my life. And again, I went on a stag do, I think, in the first sort of two, three months of my sobriety. And all my friends were sort of saying, you can't go on this, don't go on it. You know, it's okay if you miss it. And I was going, no, I'm, I'm going on this. Like, it's one of my best friends. And you know, I'm giving him alcohol, I'm not giving my life up. You know, I didn't want to be someone that wasn't going to get included in these events because of that alcohol side. You know, and it wasn't something that I ever wanted to become a stigma. I enjoyed going to the pub still. I even took myself to the pub a bit when I was in the sober days, which again, probably wasn't advisable. Wow. And it, again, not to throw the quotes out too much. I've done a few now, but uh, there's one I loved about, you know, the more times you sit in the barber's chair, the more likely you are to get a haircut. <laughs> and I was going to the pub and almost risking this sort of, you know, my early sobriety. Yeah. And I was journaling a lot of the time. I took a journal with me. So I had a little tape there and I'd just write things down. Again, I was like, what am I going to be doing? Writing my thoughts down in a little book. I mean, what's that going to do? But I really found this quite therapeutic in the end of just documenting what I was going through and little steps and little personal benefits mm-hmm. I was going through and just sitting in the corner with a with a Coke or a tonic or sort of thing. But it came with its own risks too. I mean, there was one when I, when I went in one day and asked for a tonic and the guy served me a gin and tonic. And as I put it to my lips, and I could just smell suddenly the the alcohol in my nostrils. And you had that sort of brief moment in your head of thinking, you know, no, no one would know. You could just drink this now. No one would know. But... I asked the bartender, you know, what he'd given me, and he said, oh, gin and tonic. So I didn't ask for that. And I just walked out. I just It was a moment of literally, again, that temptation being put in front of you, and again, that complacency sometimes that can easily slip. But I guess for me, I always felt as if I was the same person. I was always that same sort of character. I wasn't someone that was, you know, verbally or physically aggressive when I was drunk. I was just kind of a bit of a sleeping giant in a way. I just got more sedate as the night went on, and... There was a few times that people often said, come in. I wouldn't remember how I'd been in this pub. And I'd go, was I okay last night? And I'd come in every night and they knew me by my name. They knew what I'd drunk. And I was almost, it was almost accepted really. You know, with other people in that environment too, they were all sort of really, I suppose, borderline heavy drinkers. And, and they were like, you're absolutely fine. You know, you were a bit tired by the end. You were falling asleep, but you were saying please and thank you. So we just kept serving you. And so it was always kind of like, really, I was there. I was in there. I was just really battling these own, these own afflictions. And, you know, perhaps couldn't really be seen the full extent of what I was drinking. It was kind of just glazed eyes and would carry on highly functioning, as you will. So those elements I didn't have to rebuild. And I was very lucky, as I said before, I had a lot of friends from my school time, a lot of friends from my old um, homestead and stuff that didn't really have the same lifestyle as me either. So it was always a bit of an escape when I saw them again. And I fell on this different tangent, really, because of mental illness, really. Something that um, I still battle with. It's certainly not cured, but it's you learn to manage this better over time. but So certain aspects, I think, yes, but certainly the employment side of things perhaps was obviously I had to change that side. I couldn't work in that pub environment and try and get sober. There were certain people, perhaps friends, that were more acquaintances in that city that I was in that were more around the lifestyle I was leading that I had to get left behind. But I was quite lucky in the, in, the, in the extent that I didn't have anyone that I had to really quite aggressively cut out my life or go, no, no I can't be around you sort of thing. That was That was okay. But I appreciate some people might have that aspect that's very difficult to move away, even family or even friends, that you have to go, no, this this is not a lifestyle I want to lead. So ultimately, I felt that it was just um, almost a bit like a a, a parasite on me, really, that was that had to be removed, that I was still there, but I was being utilised as this almost host for, mm. for a substance. But then you did touch – well, you mentioned about the ingrained nature that we have in the UK of our drinking culture and – uh, that shows up still, I think, when like weddings or any sort of celebration, there's this alcohol. And there's also, I guess, kind of meals out and it's just this expectation. I just wondered if if you feel like that might be changing, because I do look at some of the younger generation and there does seem lower levels of drinking. Is this something that's going to change? Is that something that you see as problematic? Are there people that don't realise that maybe they do have problems or storing up something with alcohol. It is everywhere, as you say. I mean, when you come out of that sort of world, again, from being in that working side and personally, like it was, I saw it everywhere, everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. It was kind of all the adverts everywhere. Or when you were travelling on the bus, there was maybe someone drinking on the bus at times. And when you're in the pub environments and just constantly every social event was surrounded by it. But again, I think that's half the reason I didn't want to this become a stigma because there was so much that could be lost in life by avoiding that situation altogether now i appreciate some people would have to do that for their own their own well-being and sometimes they just can't they're not strong enough to be in that environment but for me it was just something that 
I try to get on with. I'm very much not anti-alcohol. Like I try and make that clear. I'm not someone who um, is anti against that sort of culture. I think it just doesn't work for me. I think personality wise, I feel like I have that sort of trait that I can't do this sort of, you know, just one and stop sort of thing. It's an all or nothing approach. I've been the same with, I was cigarettes. I've been the same with exercise at times. And I'm definitely the same with biscuits. I can't put them down. It's kind of just sometimes it's just ingrained in me, I suppose, that sort of mentality. And yeah, it was just a thing that really, I guess, was was was, was such a breakaway from from a diff- different lifestyle that that was bizarre, a bizarre tangent to be on. But I think it is there, as you say, in that culture. Everywhere you look, it's kind of just, especially this country, it just mm-hmm. seems to be celebrate or commiserate. It's alcohol related, isn't it? Just constantly around there, and- or even just like sporting yeah. <laughs> things. I used to go to the football matches, and season ticket. Even now, when you look at big sporting events and you're like, why? Why do we have to drink? But I, I guess it was taking me, when I stopped drinking, to to realise just how how much it was a part and how often I was the only person at a wedding that wasn't drinking. <laughs> and I think, but as you say, I think next generation-wise do seem to slightly have a different different relationship mm-hmm. with it, whether or not it's the health focus now. And even you look in sport as well. I mean, a lot of athletes now at one point, it was always, you know, beers in the changing room afterwards, whether it was the rugby, the football culture and or beers in the bath afterwards. And now it's a lot more focused on the health aspect, the recovery elements and things. Well, a lot of them don't drink at all. And it's not mm. by not by an abuse side of things, but it's not by a cultural sort of thing. Because again, there's religious aspects to some people as well for why they don't drink. But it just does seem to be a focus now on, you know, it's perhaps not the healthiest way to be. And ultimately putting that in your body all the time is not going to be optimum performance, is it, for certain aspects? It has a role at times, I think, for for enjoyments and as that social lubricant and Again, the craft of some of these drinks and you know the taste culture of it as well. But now we have a much bigger repertoire of alcohol-free drinks as well out there, providing another alternative. I think it's becoming much more of a lenient aspect of society that, yeah, I think you've just got a lot more choice now. Uh, and there's a lot less people maybe prejudging as well. I think it's still there to some extent, but there are options now around there. It's not the sort of culture you're know, drinking at work on a work lunch now as well or Yes, so yes, I've away. definitely, as a lawyer, been in expense as well. I mean, the expense of that. Yeah. Can't, can't probably afford to drink that as it was now, but it's uh, it is funny how it's still, yeah, the so every situation it seems to appear at, but yes. one that personally doesn't doesn't affect me. I'm not not bothered by that. I'll just keep my own side of the street clean, really. So take us back to this. You've got your kit ready for your hike, and <laughs> where are you heading? <laughs> So this this walk that you made, it's dragging you on. So this first one, you said, yeah, the first two weeks of that 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 change moment. Um, so he brought me these pair of boots, obviously that huge show of support, and then about half an hour later, he pulls up at the base of Blencathra. <laughs> so I think I was looking at him a bit this time, going, right, okay, what have you dragged me into here? Staring up at this hillside, and it seemed to go on forever. And again, just a completely different aspect of my life. I've never done this before. I've never really been out on these sort of hikes, and. Again, I'm just all over the place mentally and sort of physically as well. And just basically frog marched up this mountainside, you know, stepping one foot in front of the other, gasping for breath almost, just a real sort of boot camp almost. And although I did a bit of exercise in those first early weeks, again, it's not not an overnight change, this sort of thing. It's you know, such a lethargic lifestyle for the past few years, well, the past sort of seven years at this point. And literally, slowly but surely, heading up this mountainside, I mean, God knows how long it took me to get up there at the time, but reaching that sort of summit circle and him sort of looking at me and going, right, right, we're doing Helvellyn next week. <laughs> so that was it. So the week later, it was the same again. We pulled up at the base of Helvellyn, now the third highest mountain in England. And we, we climbed it from the filmier side. So literally a stone staircase to the summit top. And again, that same story again, just marching up there, one foot in front of the other, sort of battling your own head, you know, going, I can't do this. You can't do this. Can't. Where am I going to go to? What's the end goal? You're not, but again, a bit like what I was going through in my life as well, not knowing where I was, just completely stripped away from a lifestyle and routine, as you say, a personality overnight, and now just trying to reestablish it all, really. So it did feel like a bit of a physical manifestation of that and having to sort of have that blind faith and just trust in sort of the path and trust in the journey, which became a bit of a mantra of mine as well, really. And reaching that sort of summit at the top there, the trig point, looking across these fantastic views. It was a gorgeous blue sky day. And it just really sung, sung something in me, like a different note, just like a new addiction being started. And and it began this journey. So a week week after that, we went and did Scarfell Pike. I think within a month, we'd gone down to Snowdonia and done Snowden. I won't attempt the uh, the Welsh pronunciations of the National Park just yet, but I am learning 
for future podcasts. So. <laughs> no Welsh, please don't go, don't hit on me there. And then up to sort of Scotland, I mean, Ben Nevis a month later after that. And gradually I'd got into sort of running as well. Like, I mean, I couldn't run a bath this time. You know, I would have laughed you out at the pub if you tell everybody running. But I bought some trainers and was going back on these routes now, running sort of local tarns near me. And I'd found myself relocating to the Lake District at this point. I was doing some little tracks on the roadsides. And that 2K became a 5, became 10, became 15. And heading back to some of these mountains and trying to run back up the sides of them, it was just a complete, complete different change in my life. And then around Christmas time, my, my, my friend sort of turned to me and said, right, do you fancy a marathon? And again, I was going, this is getting too far now. I said, I'm not sure <laughs> this is... We've made some big changes in life, but <laughs> calm this down a bit. But he signed us up, and there I was in May 2017, so 11 months on from this this turnaround now, crossing the finish line of a marathon. And it was just like this huge physical redemption moment, just what had gone through and what this change in a year. Now, nearly a year sober at this point, I'd lost about seven stone and was living a completely different life path and really becoming the person that I think I always wanted to be ultimately. And how old were you then? So that then I'd have been um, 26, I would have been then. Wow. Six at that point. So, um, so I'm, yeah, 32 now. So I'm over seven years sober now from that day. Not a drop from that moment. But, yeah, I'm mean, very lucky to sort of, I suppose, have that awakening, maybe at that age too. I mean, some of the groups I've come across in that world of abuse, substance abuse, and you know, a lot of them, I think, don't come to terms with that until later in life. So I think, again, that's something that you can count your blessings for, really, that you managed to get out of that cycle before things really did begin to um, to crumble around you. And I feel like I've met quite a few people where they've had that attempt at going sober, but it's taken quite a few attempts to be successful. But it feels like you've managed just straight away, and I just wondered what you put that down to like how did you get through the tough days did you still have those temptations or do you still have those temptations to drink without doubt yeah without doubt i think it's um that first three months was, was immensely difficult um my head it was absolutely booming i said hallucinations it was just you know not wanting just really out, out of body almost not wanting to really do this for me i was just trying to win back this relationship ultimately and it felt a bit like my my 80s movie montage in a way of trying to sort of make clean and trying to win this partner back but you know as opposed to Hollywood things don't always end that sort of way so that wasn't to be but in doing so you know I found a lot more about myself and this became for me and became you know a much better um you know son to my mom and family member and friend and, and employee at businesses I was just much more reliable and much more ingrained in but there were certainly moments, I guess, of temptation. I mean, from that moment, that gin and tonic in that pub, to mm. certain other aspects of you know, you know, wanting to give up and you know, breaking down along the way, and just thinking, you know, I could just really shut off and escape. And I think that's sometimes the bit I do miss. It's not so much the flavour of a drink, or not so much the 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 aspect of going out and doing that practice, but that ability to to shut off and almost just have a break from life in a way by by getting completely inebriated was just a shut-off moment that, of course, carries on into the next day with, with hangovers and the like, but it was it was almost a tool, really, to allow myself to just have a pause. And that sometimes, I think, is an aspect that you can quite miss, that these days I have to be present, but that means being present through the good and also present through the bad. And although it's not quite the same roller coaster as it was in the past, it's a much more steady sort of meander now. There are moments of life that you have to ride through, and I think that ultimately is life. I think it's not always rosy. You know, quite often I think it is quite tough, but it's finding little avenues in there and little sort of tools in your in your armory to be able to get through those times and be able to know how you dealt with it in the previous days. That in the past I would have just drunk on, I've just drunk and forgotten and not faced it. You know, I probably would have ran away from that scenario. So there's certainly aspects of that that still come into play. Um, I'm sure there'll be moments in the future of, of hardship as well that will that will bring that back to its forefront as well. You often hear about particular moments of maybe grief or incidents at work that people often lose sort of their sobriety or maybe take the packet of cigarettes back out again at those moments or maybe go for a binge on some food that are almost just natural coping mechanisms in a way sometimes. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up for them, but you know, lockdown was a massive one. And I think there was a lot of people that probably did falter in some of their routines. I mean, they were just stripped away from us in a certain way. I mean, I think... For me, I'd built this sort of lifestyle 
up until the point of the first lockdown that I was still out all the time. I was still out running in the hills. I, mean, I had a few niggling ankle injuries, probably from being quite a big lad running down the fells, which are uh, basic physics, really. But the ankles <laughs> would give way every now and again. So that would put me out of action for a while. But I still had the gym to fall back on. So I was doing that and then going back out again, still hiking. But then lockdown came and all of a sudden the gyms had shut. My work went absolutely bananas. So my hours were sort of captured up. I was working more hours than I ever did before. Mountain Rescue were saying not to go into the mountains. Mm. So I was living in the Lake District and feeling very guilty for even contemplating the fact, what did, I, what did I have to worry about? I was still working. I was healthy. I was living in a beautiful area. But these routines were, were just getting erased away that I sort of spent so hard to build up. And that was very much a time that, again, alcohol sort of reared its head again and was sort of, you know, whispering, you know, sweet nothings to you almost going, no, you could just have a little break from this. You could have an escape from this and get through this uncertain period. And, and I hadn't, didn't have any other vices that I was using, no positive vices anymore. I couldn't get into this home-home workout craze. Although we were allowed outside for certain activities, it felt like there was so much judgment around for me and that even whether it was your neighbours shopping or what you were doing or people checking online, I was, I was lucky to have a slightly increased profile on social media bits as well. I didn't want to be caught being out there and ultimately didn't want to be in the wrong. So I just became very reclusive and just fell back at home and probably fell back on food. A lot more, really. I mean, it's been, it's one of my biggest passions in life, but is also a crux at times as well. So I think that was my coping mechanism there that could have so easily have been alcohol once again. But I think for many other people too, um, I think it's just been a bit kinder on yourself in a period like that, that, you know, it was very difficult to stay on that, that routine you'd built. So I think there's, um, yeah, more empathy for each other, I think, through that period. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't just routine as well, was it? It's like whole social networks have taken away when we were restricted to stay inside and couldn't meet face to face. And just going on to food, like how, so we've had these hikes, you've got out, you've run a marathon and then somewhere along the line, it's that that kind of passion and hobby of your food has become a career. Like how did that happen? Was it well planned or <laughs> has it just been evolving? Not planned at all. No, as all, of, as all of this has been, he had really. a business um, idea. He <laughs> executed it perfectly. <laughs> no, no, exactly. So uh, it's, right. <laughs> like anything, I think it, it took one day at a time, trusting that journey, just not really having any any goals. And, and I used to look so far ahead in life when I was younger. I used to want to be at a certain points and putting so much external pressure on myself. I mean, even I had goals to reach by thirty. If I didn't reach, that was kind of my my deadline for life what sort of things were these like business goals or personal or all sorts i think yeah it was sort of having a house it was a family Mm. it was a certain amount in salary all these various aspects that you know quite i suppose materialistic aspects really but but something that i achieved a couple by that time but not all of them but that was always my final deadline in life that was kind of right okay I'll, i'll grin and bear this i'll battle through each day in my own head but if i haven't reached these goals by this point then that was game over for me, really. It was kind of, that was a big milestone reaching even that birthday, really, the day after that, because for so long that had been the lion drawn in the sand. And the food side was very much just something that, again, I used to love cooking when I was younger with my grandmother, so I loved how food sort of brought people around the table, sharing stories, being open, loved watching sort of programs on the television and cookbooks and just seeing how different cultures did it and enjoying the outdoors and just all through that that shared passion of, of flavors and, and corporations so for me it was something that again i started doing a lot more of when i was trying to get sober alongside the journaling i was seeking medical help i was going to sort of group therapies but cooking was also an aspect that was quite an absent-minded task that was quite mindful for me really that i enjoyed creating and seeing what i could do and having that i suppose something to enjoy afterwards as well and when i got into the hiking sort of stage of things i started basically making things up to take with me into the hills. So little packed lunches I'd made up or some leftovers from the night before, some dinners we'd had. And I'd just carry them up in a little Tupperware box, really. And by this point, I dubbed myself the Fell Foodie online, which was, again, the Fells, as we call them over here in the north. And the Foodie being sort of enjoying um, gastronomy, really. And it was kind of merging those two together as an anonymous account at first, just sharing the views I was experiencing and the food I was making either at home or enjoying out of my Tupperware. And people would pass comment on the top of the hills and sort of what I was eating and sort of as they got the sandwiches out the bag or tried to rustle something up from a pot noodle or whatever and they'd be sort of judging me about what I was having, going, I wish I was eating what you were having there. And you'd just be you know, grinning away, enjoying it on the tops. And um, 
one person said, why didn't he get a stove and actually try and cook out there from scratch just as a bit of a smart aleck challenge, really. So I did just that. I uh, started packing up my kitchen, what I had at home, just, again, no equipment at first. It was literally just proper pans from the kitchen. I was taking ceramic plates up. I was proper big utensils up the top and bought myself a little stove and just started to see if I could recreate what I was doing at home, you know, something I really enjoyed doing with something else I was loving, which was going out into the outdoors and experiencing these views and experiencing nature. So merging those two passions. And um, I suppose the visual of that, perhaps the food and the view online seemed to do quite well, provided a little bit more of a following. And um, once a bit of a following grew, I decided to share that story once again, but now, now to a new audience, now not to friends and family, but now to relative strangers and new people I'd met through this community. And once again, that support back, from people who found the outdoors for similar reasons, people who'd use it as a recovery tool, people who still use it now as a means of, you know, maintenance almost. Um, yeah, you just felt like you'd really found your tribe in a way, some of that I'd longed for, I guess, and you just felt that like you just fit in, you fit in here. So it went from there. And sharing that story sort of led on to some weird and wonderful opportunities to share this further on at first local press and local papers and then on to some national press that then led on to even a call from um, the BBC to go on and talk about this on the television. And it's just really all sort of snowballed from there into this really unexpected path that's all began from that that moment of change back in 2016. It's great and such a good inspiration, I think, for just following your passion <laughs> and following what you enjoy. And how, I'm guessing, like you said, you got a great reaction from sharing um, your story online with with the public but I was wondering as well if you are also getting um stories from people that have had similar or going through similar and how you cope with that I mean on one hand I can feel that it would be really helpful and inspiring but on the other hand I I feel that it could be quite difficult you're taking on a lot from other people or you're constantly talking about alcohol and that just brings it to the forefront of your mind like how does that feel There's perhaps moments, I think, where, yeah, you, you don't want to, um, I suppose, completely become your past still in mm. a way. So, you know, I don't want to live there at all times. And people are perhaps sometimes, um, you know, maybe warned you about that to some degree. But I also find it very purposeful. Uh, I think for me, it was something that I always didn't have a purpose. I didn't know where my position was in life. I didn't know what I was doing. But through my struggles and through, I guess, my hardship, I feel like I've almost gained more of a purpose. And the fact that perhaps we're able to articulate these sort of feelings and go through that and maybe provide that hope and provide that lived experience is something that I'm more than happy to share. But but as you say, I think it certainly comes with, with, with cons as well as pros. I mean, I'm always an advocate for people talking. I think they should always reach out and talk to someone. If you're going through anything like this, you know, reaching out to family, to friends, to medical professionals for sure but not necessarily going public with it like i have because i think going public is a different thing to talking about this i mean often some of these campaigns make it sound like when i talk going yeah i just told everyone told the world but that itself brings there is an element of judgment i guess that comes and perception from the outside that it's almost tattooed on your forehead now this is what i do and this is who i am but most days you know it's absolutely fine not going through these avenues every day not sort of going oh oh, I'd say I'm really struggling on this point. It's just you're just living your life as normal. These are things you've been through. So you're not your problems half the time. That is not your definition. But in doing so, I think it does obviously open up those conversations. It allows people to feel more comfortable with these things. And what I've always noticed when I've spoke about this on podcasts or at corporate talks, schools, universities, there'll be people that aren't having these conversations. But the minute after you've spoken, those conversations are beginning. And I think the power of that in terms of Sort of depleting that stigma around mental health and these afflictions is is hugely powerful. So I do see it as very purpose led now. And yes, I do receive these messages online. I'm always very clear to say that I'm not a medical professional. I can provide my experience on this, but my experience won't be the be end and end all. It could be a very different scenario, but I'm always very honest with that. I think, but but always happy to hear them as well. I think people want to share those and being an ear for other people. You can't be an ear for everyone, of course. I mean, as things have grown further and further, it can be maybe more difficult to 
to do that. But so far, I've still maintained that I, I respond to every single person that has reached out to me. Like I just, it's, it, if they take the time to do that to me, then the least I can do is take the time to reply for those things. And sometimes it's people seeing that similarity or seeing that comparison that almost maybe they relate a bit more to perhaps even some of those friends and family. And I've been through that too, where my closest friends, you know, family, loved ones, sometimes just don't always get it mm. the same way. They, they might be there with the unconditional love and they'll be there with the support, but because they sometimes can't comprehend what you're talking about, it can be difficult to relate to that point. And whilst I've never ever belittled them for that, I think that's a very natural thing human-wise. If you haven't experienced something, it's not quite understand fully. Reaching out to someone who has, I think, can be very comforting. So I would always um, promote that, really. And how easy was it to go into the kind of public speaking and all the events that you do? I was just thinking that you you mentioned alcohol as being like a social lubricant, and it made me feel like and, and Dutch courage. I think you used, and I just thought, well, you're doing such huge things without that alcohol to support you, like. Do you still get nervous? Do you have imposter syndrome? Or is it just easy? <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? Because I always it? think it's, it's easy for now. everybody else, but not for me. But no. maybe. <laughs> Very bizarre. I mean, I mean, the one thing that still hasn't come through sober is I still uh, I still can't stand dancing. So I'm not the sort of person that gets to the dance floor. <laughs> Even more so sober. I think that's a very tough thing to do. But, it's <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's bizarre. Because at one time, I wouldn't have shared this stuff with myself in the mirror. And now you're sort of going on stages and talking out to audiences about it. But I sometimes compare it to a bit when you were doing these presentations at school and you used to have to do your planning and you used to come in and present to the class. And it would be about, I don't know, titration in chemistry or something, or, you know, tectonic plates in geography. And you're like, oh, I'm learning about this, but do I know every bit of the details? It's quite difficult. You're almost scared of getting something wrong. Whereas when it's me and I am the subject, I am the expert. So I'm kind of quite happy to go out and talk about that without the fear of almost someone going, well, he's a liar. Oh, he's got that wrong. <laughs> it's kind of, this is just me. This is the life I've lived. And this is how I'm articulating it. So there's a bit of confidence that comes from that. I'm knowing your material, I think, to some degree. But there's certainly fear, especially maybe if you know someone in there sometimes or you see a certain in the crowd, you sort of think, how are they going to take this on? But I think, again, that purpose-led nature of it, I think, I just know that there's going to be someone in there that will take something from this. And it's never my place to say, you know, I'm inspirational or motivational because I never think that's my – they're not my words to use. That's kind of the person in the audience to take that. But by just opening that conversation up, I think the power that comes from that for other people and for that sort of societal movement, I think, is a powerful thing to do. So that kind of overarchs that that nervous nature, which I think is, is ultimately always there. I think it always will be. And I think the minute you're not sort of nervous about these things, you hear it, people on bigger stages, you hear musicians and all sorts still get nervous of going out. And that's kind of the moment that it means something. You know, there's something there. You, you're bothered about it. So you should be nervous in a way. And it's, I don't think it's not to a level of, you know, an anxiety sort of thing, which I think is its own, you know, illness in itself. But natural nerves, I think, are completely something that you would want to experience and something like that because it just means you're going into an unsure environment. But the imposter syndrome is certainly one you battle with uh, from these moments. I think of why why are you there? Why are you on this roster? And looking at other people around sometimes of going, wow, look at all these amazing people I'm talking with. And you know, what have I done? I'm just some I'm just some bloke really who's just done this and spoke about it. Like I'm not why am I up with these people? So that's something I, I do battle with a little bit, I think. And um do take things in their stride, but also perhaps, you know, I'm not this really self-driven sort of, you know, self encouraging platform in person that sometimes people are that you know they shout the loudest and they get these opportunities i'm kind of just matter of fact really I think. <laughs> which is which is good and bad i guess it sometimes maybe leads into other angles but um they're certainly still there but it's all been again quite a natural path i've not designed it to try and go into this speaking avenue it's kind of i got asked to do it once after talking about it and i thought yeah i'll do that and then you went in, didn't know what I was doing, turned up, didn't know about to do a slideshow or whatever, just sort of put something together. The next time you learned a bit more because you saw some other people, you watched them, you had another go, got nice feedback. Then you go, right, we'll go again. And it's just, it's constantly, everyone's winging it to some degree. Everyone's winging this. You don't know the path you're on. Yes, there's aspects of looking at mentoring and bits in there and looking for help from others and more senior senior people in the space. But ultimately, you've got to carve these paths and you've got to just have a go. And the worst that you can do, you know, is fail at those points. And you can always pick yourself up and go again. So I think it's something that 
I just throw myself in the deep end, really, and we'll see what comes from it. And just take things quite laissez-faire. I think so often we're so serious in life and so meticulous about these aspects that, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, even if you trip over and fall on the stage, then just, you know, have a laugh about it. It's pretty funny, really. You know, it's just, you've, it's, yeah. it's nothing yeah. to be worried about. And again, you won't be defined by that for the rest of your life either. I mean, unless you've done something, you know, grossly serious maybe on there, but uh, <laughs> for these natures, I think you're usually okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I just... I just wanted to ask, kind of leading in from that confidence, um, like we talked about your weight, that how at your your biggest, you're like nearly twenty over twenty two stone, and you mentioned that you'd lost weight when you started exercising and became sober, and I just wondered if body image was an issue for you or something that you thought about, um, given how high profile you are now, particularly. Well, your words there, high profile. I'm afraid I use the same, but it's, um, given it's, um, that you're now an international celebrity. Oh yeah, I'm sure that's it. Maybe maybe viewed once in the Philippines, maybe or, I don't know. But it's um, no, it's certainly something. I think that 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 is probably the one of the most difficult aspects. I think I do have in myself. I'm I'm still hugely self-critical. I think that that often brings, I suppose, elements of maybe perfectionism at times that can lead to sort of you know good success in some avenues of work, but also can lead to quite scrutinising and criticism really that and my weight I think and my, my appearance has always been one of those I think sometimes I mean I'm battling with that again and now I think I've spoke about that quite openly as well I'm always quite raw and honest with these approaches but I've been putting on more weight again in lockdown and now you know feeling as if I'm, I'm going backwards a little bit and failing a bit on that front even though it's through that time that was quite difficult but one of the hardest things I think is is the fact that when I first went through this turnaround everything was a personal best everything was an improvement going on the runs, getting quicker, getting leaner, sort of lifting more in the gym. Whereas now I'm doing it and I'm going, you used to be faster, you used to be stronger, you used to be better at this. And it's a different mental battle now really um, in myself. And it's always self-inflicted. It's not really opposed to those on the outside, like going, oh, look, he's slower. But they don't know. It doesn't matter. And I try to tell myself, I struggled at the start again with these sort of gym anxieties, don't you? Or running publicly, I really struggled with when I was overweight because it was kind of, the fear of the judgment from the outside that did dissipate as time went on and I kind of became less bothered about what other people thought. But I think this is also the impact that being perhaps, you know, carrying some weight can do to you. I think the impact it has on you mentally is huge. You know, and now I don't have the, the outlets like alcohol. I'm not smoking. I'm, I'm eating a lot healthier, perhaps maybe too much sometimes, but eating a lot healthier. But now I've got more weight on me again. I'm noticing more again. I'm I'm more self-critical again i'm more sort of you know worried about things i'm probably more nervous than i have been before and and all these things really are kind of there's two aspects that have changed perhaps less exercise and carrying more weight again nothing else nothing else has changed so the impact that can have i think is is still huge and whilst i'm a big advocate for sort of you know people being positive in their own bodies and body positivity and you know enjoying sort of the the, the shape or size you are i know for me personally it does have some adverse effects on me being that way that that I could do better in if I was if I was living sort of slightly maybe leaner sort of leaner life or, or having more activity in my life sort of thing. So it's something that really that's a very personal um, interpretation and personal sort of realization I think for me. But so currently I'm struggling to get back in the door with the gym and things I think because I'm in my own head again about what people are really thinking, what you're looking like, and again running down the street and I quite like it when it's a bit darker because I can have a bit of a hide of the darkness and. They're all mental battles that just that are just going on stupidly, really, in your head that no one's bothered. Everyone's so worried about their own lives. But I can tell myself this, and I can tell everybody else this, but <laughs> I've still got to face sometimes. And it's, that's the bonkers bit. You know, you often, yeah, the, the person you need to convince is you. But one thing I used to try and say to myself at one point when I was running the, the first time, I mean, I, I'm, I'd love to get back into the runs I was doing back then because I used to love it. Um, just where the ankles play, play a ball at the moment. And um, it, it, was, it was going down the roadside. It was there. And I'd run down the street and I'd, someone would ca- you'd catch the eye of someone in a cutting car. And I'd think, oh, what are they thinking about me? Doing this room, what doing that? What are they thinking? Oh, are they laughing at me and this sort of stuff? And ultimately, I was thinking, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm doing more than I am if I was the person sat on the sofa at home. And it doesn't matter how slow I'm going or how far I'm going. I'm doing more than the person doing nothing. So it was kind of that self battle with myself. And it was always about that. No, never anybody else. Never competitive against other people, just purely competition with myself and that's something that i guess i'll have to come to terms with as well as life goes on and life gets older because ultimately things change there as well but i am not living in the past but i'm certainly battling that past version of myself a bit more now 
and not the past version that was asleep on the bar, but the past <laughs> version that was running up the side of Helvellyn and uh, and enjoying the view from the top because he's getting there a bit quicker than I am. <laughs> <laughs> With the Rocky theme tune behind him. <laughs> always, always the Rocky Four theme tune. That's, that's, that's the main motivator for sure. Uh, and just finally on resilience, that's that's what this podcast is exploring. I mean, in, what comes up for you when I say resilience? And also if I ha- had to get you to kind of pick those resilience moments which which moments would you be picking from the stories that we've been through it's certainly ingrained in all of that i think at times even from the days where perhaps i wasn't doing the activity the resilience of just getting out of bed each day and moving on and and not not sort of carrying on in life i mean there was many days that i didn't think i'd get through those days so that in itself is resilience to the moments of going against the grain and trying to make a change and then again having the doubters and stuff coming in that often weren't doing it maliciously but there would be the seeds of doubt there going, oh, is this a fad? Oh, yeah, how long is it going to last? Is he going to stop drinking too long? He's moved away now, but for how long? Having to be resilient through those, for those moments of doubt and believe in your own sort of journey. So then the next step, of, I guess, suppose, battling through those other bits and keeping going um, through blips and river moments. So it's ingrained throughout it, really, I think, that sort of resilience aspect. Um, but, yeah, I think to pinpoint exactly everything, the definition of these, I think it's, it, it's a difficult one, but certainly, yeah, pushing on when times are hardest, mm. I think is something that we have to go through in life. You know, we never have this, never have this rosy, glowy, and everything's happy all day life. And sometimes I think perhaps social media can portray a bit more of that and people try and achieve that point of getting there. But hardship and grief and upset and sadness are all elements of life. They're not, they're not often a mental affliction. They're not a mental illness. They're kind of aspects we have to go through. You know, it's normal to feel those sensations when something goes wrong or a relationship ends or you lose a loved one or, or yeah, they're just normal things to go through. So it's just how about how you deal with those and how you manage those, I think, and how you create that maybe resilient path through those moments. But they make the ones up there all the far better. They make those highs just all the better to achieve. So, yeah, keep on plodding. I'd agree with that. And and what's next? Where where's your world domination going? What's <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're reaching those uh, those high profile heights that you've done? Maybe. Um, no, but you've already know. got those. No, <laughs> I gave it. you those. Oh, sure. uh, that's it. Yeah, but it's I don't know. Well, again, as anything, it's one day at a time for me these days. You know, both in my sobriety, both in my journey through life. Um, not looking too far ahead now, but. Just, yeah, enjoying the journey as what comes its way, what doors of opportunity come, jumping through those, seeing what happens. They've always led to something, whether it's you know meeting someone new, whether it's a contact, whether it's an opportunity, whether it's just an experience. I think it's just embracing those as they come and not being too pent up on on, on, on missed things and missed opportunities as well. I'm very much a believer of that these days. But in the immediate term, I guess, I suppose, um, I, I've got a book coming out soon. I've got a debut cookbook, which is quite exciting. Amazing. So that's out in the October. So again, that's a bit of a childhood dream come true. And so I'd never imagined doing uh, at one point in my life. So for that to come out in October would be fantastic. All meals around adventure, all designed to be cooked whilst camping on it, an adventure sort of stoves. And um, yeah, otherwise, I guess that'll become my personality for the next year or so, I'm sure. <laughs> but otherwise, just touring around, more speaking at festivals, meeting great people, and hopefully ticking off some more of these hills uh, closer to home as well. Oh, that sounds amazing. And good luck with the book launch. And I'm sure I'll be getting a copy. And hopefully they're not. Are there any vegan recipes in there? There is. Yeah, plenty, yes. actually. Yeah. So my, my, my girlfriend's actually vegetarian <laughs> now at the moment. So she's it's quite a bit for her. But then vegan wise, I've got maybe 80, 84 recipes, 85 recipes in the book, I think, of which maybe about half are vegetarian and perhaps maybe about 20 or so are vegan. So that's amazing. Um, there should be plenty in there for everyone. And there's also substitutions and things in there as well for different dietary. So it is something I've considered quite heavily through this book. So hopefully there's something for everyone. I'm so excited about your book. Well done for doing that. Are all the photos done? Have you been cooking up fells? Yeah, so we've been looking your best. <laughs> it was all over it was all over the winter time it was for the book. So it was kind of I wouldn't usually be out cooking that much in the hillsides. I mean I'm not expecting many people to cook them up in the hill like I do, but it's certainly it's um, closer to home. Even at home, they will still work there. But <laughs> winter was just was god awful. It was just horrendous rain all the time, gale force winds. None of these lovely sort of cold crisp days that we we envision with winter. So 
We're out there in some of them just going, what are we doing, battling this wind and picking stuff out of the rucksack that was literally freezing as we were getting it out of the bag. And anyway, we've managed it off, but some of the reshoots in spring are certainly were more preferable to shoot. But uh, it, it ends up with a really nice variation of shots. And I suppose if I can cook it out there in those environments, then, yeah, anyone on a summer camping holiday can certainly achieve that. <laughs> like extreme adventure <laughs> cooking when the wind, 70 mile an hour winds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The satire was not lost to me at the time. <laughs> Well, yes, congratulations with that. But also, thank you so much for sharing what you have done today, but also in your talks and other work, because it's so valuable to hear your stories and your experience and your wisdom. Well, thank you for giving me a platform to do so. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.